The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. Verses that I have not fully come to a conclusion on 
even where I believe the Apostle John is speaking, what he's speaking in regards to. And we'll talk about that more in a, in a few moments. But, but I honestly began the whole entire book concerned of reaching these verses, thinking, what in the world am I going to say before you in regards especially to a sin unto death and sin that is not unto death. And, and as I began to study this week and the frustration of, of trying to come to a right understanding of what those verses mean, I knew even in undergrad I wrote a paper on those two verses that left me more confused than I was when I began. And even to the end of this week in studying these, these verses, I've, I've come to realize sometimes there's a goodness of just letting go complexity and embracing what is clear and what is plain. That we must not let what is difficult to understand, rob us of the goodness, of the wisdom, of the truth that is needed that we find in these verses. And so what I want us to do this morning is is not dwell on the sin unto death and sin not unto death. We'll cover it in passing, but I want us to see in the the surrounding verses even the, the grand applications that the Apostle John is leaving for the believer as he concludes this letter. And there's so much beautiful, good admonition that we find here. His final instructions. It reminds me even of a, a parent who is sending his child away or her child away to college and no longer a child becoming a young man, young lady, and, and, and maybe some final words of wisdom as they depart to go to college to be on their own or even, even more accurate to this situation of grandpa. Of grandpa writing some final words, saying some final words even to a grandchild, knowing that his passing would soon be coming. These are powerful words. There is great admonition for us in these words when we we come to dwell upon them with just a, a little bit of attention. And so let's turn our attention this morning to do just that. Notice, first of all, verses 14 through 17. The word of admonition, pray often. Pray often. Paul even says we're to pray without ceasing, that our life is to be a constant communication with with God, lifting up our cares and burdens to Him who cares for us. Why pray often? Because this is our confidence, the Apostle John says, that we have in the Lord, that if we ask anything according to His will, we know that God hears us. We know that there is a God in heaven who hears the prayers of His people. Step back and think about that for a moment. Imagine, many of you in the room don't like the man sitting in the White House, but still respecting the office of the presidency, imagine if you had the president's phone number, and at any moment this morning you could shoot a text message, and you knew that the one of the most powerful men in the world, you, you had his ear, and you could present to him whatever was going on in your life. Far greater, of course, is God Almighty. The one who knows you and created you. The one who's sovereign even over all that's in your life. Having a direct line of communication to the Lord to know that when a child of God prays the prayers that we pray, there is a God in heaven who hears our prayers. He says that if we ask anything according to His will, and this ties into what James tells us as well, that sometimes we don't have our prayers answered, Uh, Because we're asking out of our own selfish pleasures, out of our own pursuits of of really even our idolatries idolatries that we're we're chasing. And we ask amiss to spend it on ourselves. 
He's not talking about our selfish, God's a genie in a bottle, you know, rub the genie, get our three wishes type prayers that the world around us prays. God help me to get that job promotion. God help the lottery ticket to be the right one, even though I'm sinning by playing the lottery. God, you know, we, so many people pray for so many different things that are selfishly motivated for own, their own glory, for their own self-pleasure. That's not, well, not what John's talking about. John's talking about a person under the, 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 the being filled with the Spirit, under the guidance of God's Spirit, praying for the will of God to be accomplished in one's life, knowing and obeying the commands of God, and, 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 and in that oneness even with God, lifting up prayers to the Lord, that when one prays under the will, seeking the will of God, God not only hears the prayer, John says in verse 15, but God, God answers the prayer. We have the petitions that we have asked of Him. We know whatever we ask, that God hears and that God answers. I like what John Stott had to write about that thought of praying in the will of God. He says, prayer is not a convenient device for imposing our will upon God or for bending God's will to ours, but the prescribed way of subordinating our will to His. The prayer is a lot more about us aligning our will to God than it is getting God's will to align with ours. It is by prayer that we seek God's will, embrace it, and align ourselves with it. Every true prayer is a variation of the theme, your will be done. That when we pray, that our lives even ought to be filled with prayer and praying, of, of, of seeking the will of God in and through all that life entails. Even the difficult, especially the difficult seasons of life, the sicknesses, the cancer, the unexpected loss of a loved one, all, all that life may entail as we turn to God and even pour out our heart before the Lord, if we're, we're honest and open, seeking Him and seeking His will, we know there is a God in heaven who hears our prayers and who answers our prayers. Now, He may not answer our prayers in the exact way that we in our finite thinking believe He ought to. Get an amen on that one? God's ways are higher than our ways. God knows a little bit more than we know. God sees a little bit bigger picture than we see. The great philosopher of everything, redneck Garth Brooks, actually put it very well in his country song. He, he mentioned seeing a lady many years later that he was praying would be his wife in his younger years. And he, he the, the chorus of this song, it... it, it reads, I don't, I don't know it by memory because I've never listened to it before, just because he may not answer doesn't mean he don't care. Some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. Now, that's horrible grammar, but it's good theology. Just because God doesn't answer doesn't mean he don't care. Some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. God answers the prayer by not answering it quite in the way we think we ought to in our finite way of thinking, in our limited way of seeing things. We know by faith that there is a God in heaven and He gave His Son to redeem us and he, He's made us to be children of His that when we turn to the Lord in prayer, there's a God who hears, there's a God who cares, there's a God who as we're seeking His will, even in our immaturity, even in our finiteness, our limited ability to truly see the fullness of His will, even as we seek Him in, in prayer, He promises He hears us and He answers our prayers. Realize that this morning. There's a God in heaven who hears your prayers. 
Not only does He hear your prayers, He's a God in heaven who answers your prayers. It's a, a call to pray, to pray continually in the life of, of a believer, in the life of a Christian. And then we get an example in verses 16 and 17. Paul, or John rather, gives us an illustration and an application of, of what he's talking about. And I think he missed the preaching class where they went over illustrations, where illustrations are supposed to make the picture clearer and and illustrate and make it easier to understand because what he brings forth actually adds a lot of confusion and kind of convolutes everything. Uh, Obviously, I would say the audience to whom he was writing understood what it was to have a sin unto death and a sin that was not unto death. We, on being removed a couple thousand years from then, and not having a lot of other biblical commentary, finding anywhere in the Bible where it talks about a sin unto death and a sin not unto death, not having that, are a little bit in the dark as to what exactly John is referring to here, that when there is a believer, a brother, it says, sinning a sin which does not lead to death, we're to pray for him, and God will give him life. But then for those committing a sin that is unto death, he says that we should not pray about that. It's not a blatant command. It's sort of a recommendation. We might not want to pray for that. Um, all unrighteousness is sin. All sin is sin, but there is sin not leading to death. John, help me out here. What are you, what are you talking about? If I know a brother, and there's a brother in sin, God does say I'm to pray for him. We are to pray for one another. But it's good to pray for one another, even when we find one another failing and faltering in the walk that we ought to be walking instead of gossiping, instead of um, sharing all the, the dirty laundry. We ought to be praying for one another in that, that God would restore, that God would redeem. So what does it mean here for a sin that's unto death? There are a number of different options that have been proposed throughout church history. Uh, the whole Catholic view of mortal sins and Venial sins, I think I said that right. Sins that the believer could even commit that uh, remove him from the grace of God. There's an Arminian perspective that would believe that you can actually lose your salvation if you commit some of these sins. You can be saved and sin a sin like this, and then now you're not saved. And, And I would say, no, we can't. One thing we do know is that whatever John is talking about here does not go against the other revelation of God's Word. He's not going to contradict other clear teachings that speak on the perseverance of the saint, the perseverance of the believer, the once saved, always saved, the, that God will keep those who've um, turned to him and God's given eternal life and it's of grace and of his mercy, not of works, therefore work, works won't, won't do away with it. Like there's, there's too much other evidence, other scriptures that deal with the eternality of our salvation, the security of our salvation for this to mean we can lose our salvation. So, so what is he talking about? I'll just give you quickly two options that I don't even know if I would hold to one or the other or neither. <laughs> one option is the sin unto death. D.B. Warfield proposed this, that, that it is a sin that a believer can get to in their life that God, in His grace and mercy, says enough is enough. You've, you've sinned enough in your waywardness on, 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 on earth and the brokenness of this life. I am going to to injustice bring you to heaven where you will be fully sanctified, remove you from temptation because you have strayed so far. And so an illustration, example of this would be uh, Paul speaks of those who were abusing the Lord's Supper and what a great offense that was in the eyes of God and that some even slept because of it. Some were even killed by God for their disrespect of the Lord's Supper, their abuse of the Lord's Supper. If we infer that those were believers and we read it into this passage, it could be that there is a sin that a believer can commit where the patience of God on this life comes to an end and says that enough is enough. 
you have have turned against your heavenly Father long enough, far enough, and, and now I'm going to take you to be in heaven, not a loss of salvation, but an ending of this life and a judgment of God to bring them to the eternal dwelling place. Perhaps. But how in the world am I to know if that's a person committing such a sin or not, unless they're dead? <laughs> and then you obviously wouldn't be praying. Uh, it, it just it, it fits, but it doesn't, to me, solve all the complexities of the issues that, that John proposes here. Why does he mention all unrighteousness is sin and there is a sin not leading to death? Wouldn't well, that be an obvious statement that not all sin leads to instant judgment of God in removing of this physical life? It's also in the realm of spiritual life that's being given. Why would it be spiritual life and then physical death? There, there's complexities. Perhaps another view is that this is apostasy or even blasphemy of the Holy Spirit committed not by a believer but by one who was a false believer, uh, one who made a false profession and would be particularly speaking about the false teachers that went out from the church who went out because they were never truly of the church. They never were truly believers. There was a false profession, and now they're sinning sins that are unto death. They're, they're getting evidence by their sinfulness that they are not Christ. And we never pray a prayer, you know, God forgive them, even though they're rejecting Jesus as Lord and Savior. God forgive them, even though they've denied the, the way, the truth, and the life. We, we never do pray that prayer. We ought not pray. God, Jesus is the way. It's, it's Father, forgive them because of Christ, through Christ. Let them turn, let them repent. That doesn't fully solve all of the difficulties either in, in the verses laid out here before us. And that is all I'm going to say on it. Because at the end of the day, I don't know. Um, I know what it does say, though. We ought to pray for one another when we fail, when we falter, when we sin. And it does say, don't let it rob us from the grand point here, that God is in heaven answering the prayers of his people when we turn to him and when we pray to him. And so don't don't miss that main point. I, I, I Just a few weeks ago, we went to the convention, Florida Baptist Convention, and sometimes at those bigger gatherings, one of the speakers may ask for everybody to pray out loud individually. If you can imagine, there's more people, a lot more people even that are in this room that stand up and start praying aloud. And, and I, to be honest with you, in my independent fundamentalism, I don't join in and do this. like just weird when you all all praying out loud for And I, I pray in my heart to the Lord. I do. I'll bow and pray. But it is unique hearing that many people praying at one time. Well, what do you hear? If everybody in this room were to start praying out loud right now, you, you hear just gibberish except for the one sort of charismatic, outgoing guy that had to pray out loud above everybody else. I heard his voice a little more above everybody else. But besides his voice, I could not hear and make out hardly any word for anybody that was praying. And I remember thinking in that moment, even as I'm praying to God, just saying, God, thank you that you hear the gibberish of your people. <laughs> like, all of this that I can't make one word out. God hears every prayer from every individual, whether it's spoken aloud or whether it's merely the prayer of your heart being lifted to God, God hears the prayers of His people, and He answers the prayers of His people. This is a call to be people of prayer. When is the last time you prayed, believer? Did you get up this morning and pray? Did you pray before you went to bed last night? There's only times you pray when you're sitting down at a meal and there's a cultural expectation that you, you say a little short, God bless us, we're about to eat, amen. Or you got a little rhyming prayer even that you pray. I hope that's not the extent of your prayer life. Be in a constant communion with God, a constant communication with the Lord through prayer. Pray often. Secondly, verses 18 through 20, remember whose you are. 
We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. Notice how many times we know appears in these verses. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. You know, there's a lot of movies about a, the main character losing their memory about who they were. From the cheesy, corny uh, Hallmark love stories to... Jason Bourne and Bourne Identity and other action sort of movies where a person loses their whole identity. And the whole plot of the movie is usually about them refinding out who they were, what is important about an identity. It, it drives who you are. It drives y- your whole interaction and purpose in life and the way that you relate even to one another. It is vitally important as a believer, John is leaving these words upon us to realize this, that, that we realize our identity is in Christ above and beyond any and everything else that this world can identify us as or identify us with, Christ is most important. He says, we know that we know the one true living God. We know that we are His in Christ. We know that because we are in Him, He says, we don't continue in sin. We don't have a life of habitual sin because we're the Lord's, we're God's. We're in Him. He's given us true life. We've been given this understanding that's come from God and our relationship with Him that drives us in how we live in this world that is fallen. And he makes that clear. This world is under the sway of the evil one, of the wicked one. But don't worry, you're in Christ. The wicked one can't touch you. All of this is pointing to a a reminder that ought to be continually upon us that we are not of this world, that we've been saved, that we've been redeemed, that we've been given eternal life, that we've been given an understanding from God that radically revolutionizes not only the way we live, but the way that we are, the being that we are. We've been given the Holy Spirit. We're a new creation in Christ. We've been made new. Why is it that a young man and a young lady sleep together outside of wedlock. They forget their identity in Christ as believers. Why is it that a young family gets away from, from the Lord and from church because they're so busy with all the things of life that they forget their identity? I feel like sometimes asking, like, are, are you really, are you a child of God? Haven't you been given an understanding from God? Like you see things differently in life because you've been saved, you've been forgiven, you've been redeemed. You don't live like everybody else because of that. You go to church on Christmas Day because you've been given an understanding. Not everybody's going to be in the church house on Sunday morning. There's probably a number of churches that aren't even holding the church service on Sunday morning, Christmas morning. But, But why are we? Because we've been given eternal life. Because we've come to know the one true living God. Because we've been given this understanding. Remember whose you are through the temptations of life. Remember whose you are when Satan tempts you. When sin becomes appetizing and desirable. Remember, I'm a child of God. I can't do those things. Remember whose you are through the trials of life, not just the temptations of, of life, but the trials of life. When things get really hard and you, you, you don't understand why things are happening the way that they are. In 
and unexpected sufferings come, and even unexpected hurts from people you never expected it from. And instead of getting woe is me and in doom and despair, it's good to remember whose you are, to read even these verses and remind yourself, I'm a child of God. I know the one true living God. He's given me an understanding about life that surpasses the understanding of an unbeliever. An unbeliever that lives as if this is all that there is. An unbeliever that that has no joy in suffering because if this is all that there is, how miserable are we all? Because death's going to come upon us all. There'd be no real ultimate purpose in life. No joy to lead us through than endurance through hard times. We have been given an understanding of much greater things, of God and of His love and of eternal life, of a heaven and a new heaven and a new earth that is to come, of His work even through our suffering to bring about a greater glory that would never be accomplished without the suffering we're going through. We're to live in light of that. We're to let our identity in Christ be constantly upon us, especially as we face the trials of life as well as the temptations of life. Pray often, remember whose you are. And then lastly, finally, verse 21, short concluding command. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Flee idolatry. You know, after reading this, even studying through this letter, after reading this passage even, for all of you who have been with us week by week through uh, walking through these verses, you know John has not mentioned the word idolatry one time, has he? He hasn't. Idolatry has not been a subject he's hit upon. We would, we would kind of expect him to say one more time, little children, love God and love one another. Amen. That would be my expected closing to the letter, even in a weird way, because it's not a salutation. There's not a greeting and a kind of wrapping up in a personal way that, that Paul often would do in his letters. He, he leaves this command hanging, and it seemingly is disconnected at first. Like, John, why all of a sudden are you, you just knee-jerk reaction throwing idolatry in here? But what you come to realize, if you understand what idolatry is, this is not just a tagline that he later adds to his letter that, that, that he thought, you know what, I haven't talked about idolatry. I need to throw that in there before I send this letter off. This is actually the command that he has been leading to throughout the entirety of the letter. He's been building up to this final command that he's leaving with them, leaving with us. Everything he's written, everything he's said leads to this command to keep ourselves from idols, from idolatry. Well, what is idolatry? Go back to the Old Testament. Define it simply. Idolatry is a belief in a false god. There's a simple definition of idolatry. Belief in a false god. The first two commandments of the Ten Commandments that God gave deal with idolatry. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make any graven image or idol. First two commands. There should be no other gods before me, and you're not to make any graven image, any any idols. Yet throughout Israel's history, we know they did just that. They broke those commands over and over again, all the way at the very beginning with, with Aaron and the golden calf that they constructed there at, at Sinai. And what in the world led the people to do that? They waited at this mountaintop for, for many, many days for God to, to reveal himself, for God to give instruction, and they grew weary and tired of waiting on God is what it boiled down to. They wanted a God like the Egyptians that they could see, that they could handle, that they could carry where they wanted, 
that they could manipulate even with their offerings as it stood their idol before them. They wanted a God that was tangible. They wanted a God that was able to be manipulated for their blessing, for their well-being. And so they constructed this golden calf as a symbol even of the one true living God that they thought, surely God will be okay. This is just something created uh, in His image even. We'll worship God through the worshiping of this golden calf, a sign, a symbol of, of strength. And they turn and they worship a false god. They go into the promised land. And as they enter the promised land, the gods of the Canaanites, many times they would turn to worship. The gods of the surrounding people even, they would turn to worship through seasons of their history. God would even bring the Babylonian captivity and Assyrian captivity upon them because of their idolatry. The turning of, of instead of finding in God and in the worship of God and the living for God the right way of life, they turn to these false deities in order to meet their needs, in order to find their safety and their security. And all that was taken from them by their, because of their idolatry. John has written this letter, he said, in order that we may know that we know. We may know that we have eternal life through Christ and that we may continue believing on His name. John has taught over and over again that when you come to experience the love of God, you, you will, in response, live a life of obedience before God, and you will love one another within the body of Christ. Over and over, these themes have, have occurred, and he, he's leading up to this point, to this command even, that, that, that love of God is first and foremost. If you want to love God as it's commanded with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, He must be first. He, he must be upon the throne of your life. He must be the priority who, who is the one who you are worshiping above any and everything else. And what do we call it when anything and everything else gets put above God? It's idolatry. Now, now we have a more sophisticated means of idolatry in this day and age. I don't think there's any of you, at least none of you have ever come to me and said, I've just got this little wooden carved image that I keep in my little shrine at the house and I... I, I'm, I'm, I'm lighting candles and bowing down and worshiping it. In our culture, that's very taboo. That's very archaic to some degree. We, we've sort of, in our sophistication, recognized the absurdity of thinking a block of wood can actually be a deity, can actually do something for us. Now, we don't have idols like that that we worship, but we do have our idols, don't we? Summed up pretty well, even in the show, American Idol where it's not just the ability, the talent of singing that drives the appeal to that show and desire to win. It's the whole life that comes with that fame and fortune and really just a life of ease and comfort, a life of safety and security, getting anything and everything we want by our own means. We've got our idols. We've got our idols of money, our idols of fame, our idols of being worried about what everybody else is thinking about. We go on and on with the list of idols that we turn to. And God says... No, flee idolatry. If you're really going to have my love upon you, if you're really going to live in obedience to my commands, if you're really going to have a love that's a true love given of me for one another, you, you can't have your heart chasing after all the things of this fallen world. You, you can't be worshiping idols and thinking God's blessing is going to come upon you at the same time. He closes with this clear command, keep yourselves from idols. Idols will blind and deceive. Idols will lead astray from the worship of the one true living God. 
much as a forgotten identity is the cause of many believers not living for the Lord, um, idolatry is right in there with it. I know families, I know believers who will drive three hours to go to a competition with their kids or to a sporting event with their kids, and they can't get up by 11 o'clock to make it to the Lord's house to worship. So what happened? What, what, what's the reasoning for that? Idolatry. They're worshiping. Everybody worships. Just go to a U.S. football game. They got songs. They've got like they're worshiping. I'm not saying it's wrong to go to a U.S. football game, but I'm saying it's wrong to worship a U.S. football game. We worship. Everybody's a worshiper. It's a matter of what you're worshiping. And unfortunately, a believer, whether that's a young family getting so consumed with the life of their kids whether that's a retiree getting so consumed with the next vacation spot that they lose sight of why they're here all together and their retirement and the purpose of God upon their life. I don't want to pick just on the younger folks. I've got to pick on the older folks a little bit too. Whether that's the man that leaves his wife and family, his kids, for some other woman, for a relationship that will never last. Why? Why is he doing that? It's a worship issue. There's an idol in his heart that he's seeking. He's not worshiping the one true living God. Idolatry is the root of all sin. When we turn and do it our own way, it's a worship issue. We're not worshiping God rightly. And so the final culminating command that the Apostle John gives, little children, he says, keep yourselves from idols. This would make a good message even for a graduating class of seniors that are going off to college even, for the new believers class. Just as much as it's for one in the beginning of a journey with the Lord, it's a reminder to us all. We look to these three words of admonition here at the end of John. And you ask yourselves, how, how am I doing as a child of God? Pray often. Remember whose you are. Flee idolatry. have an invitation and you can leave having heard a three point sermon and be no different for you what I would ask as we come to a time of invitation take just a moment and examine your heart and mind examine your life and truly deal with the Lord this morning in response to the word of God in response to this admonition God has given through John that he's recorded for us this morning. Even I myself must sit under my own preaching and say, Brandon, how's your prayer life been? Brandon, what sort of identity are you finding yourself in? Are you living more as a a preacher trying to put on a show, or are you living truly as a child of God in your home life, in your spouse, with your kids? What idols have crept up in our hearts? I come to think about our worship time a little differently this week. Not only is it a time of worship, it's actually a time of killing idols too. We gather in this place that God can bring out the idols of our heart. And we can repent, and we can confess, and we can be renewed and restored, and we can leave them. Leave them and go and begin this week now worshiping rightly, following God Almighty. So I encourage you, however it is that God is working on your heart this morning, deal with it now. Don't just be a hearer of God's word only. Father, I pray you would.
work of your grace and mercy in this place. Lord, we've looked to your word and what a powerful word it is. What powerful thoughts are even given to us here. The way that we should be a praying people. Who we are in you, what you've done for us in Christ. Lord, the constant threat before us, the temptation to turn away from you and replace you with lesser so, Lord, as we come to this invitation, I do pray you work in our hearts. I pray you convict. I pray you point us to Christ afresh and anew, that you reveal to us any way whatsoever that we have worshipped other things, lesser things rather than you. Lead us to repentance of your loving kindness, but lead us to a confession, a renewal this morning, and help us to be rightly serving, rightly worshipping, rightly living as your child. I pray this in Christ's name. Lord, if there be one who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, I especially pray. Open their eyes.